Scripture reading this morning is from Proverbs 22nd chapter 6 verse. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. If you're visiting with us today, and I know some of you are, uh, we kicked off a series of lessons that I'm calling Home Depot about three weeks ago. And in particular, I, I've been using the illustration of a custom house that Gil and I built in Ruidoso uh, back in 2003. And I was able to show you last week uh, what I think is, is true of both all custom homes that are built and also all Christian homes uh, that are built. And what you're looking at right there is a foundation that was a part of that uh, incredible house that my wife built there in Ruidoso. And uh, it was just amazing to me uh, the process, as I shared with you last week, of how long that thing took to make. I mean, almost a third of our project, it seemed, was getting that foundation underway. Um, and it was amazing a few moments ago as we sang about foundations uh, to see both the smile on the kids' faces and some of your own faces. As Victor said, you know, I first learned to build houses when I was five years old. And that's because of that song that we sang and because we learned in the church early on that a grace foundation is a great foundation. Especially when we're talking about not custom houses, but Christian homes that we're building. And Jesus made that point. That song that we sang comes from Matthew chapter 7 when he tells us that there was this um, really, really wise guy. I mean, he, he knew how to build homes. And he built his home on a, a firm, solid foundation called the rock. But then there was this foolish guy. And he wasn't so wise when it came to building homes. And he built his house on the shifting sand, a not-so-solid foundation. And his house went, and do this with me, all right? Get your hands out this way. And the foolish man's house went very good. And that's what happens to any house and to any home that's built without a great, solid foundation. And for those of us in the church, we realize that's a grace foundation. So, sister, whether your home includes a handicapped mate or a special needs child, whether your home has one kid or seven, whether your home is single parent or double parent with both a husband and a mom, that foundation I want to encourage you to lay is a grace foundation. Here's the point that came from that last week. Mom and Dad, your number one goal as a parent is not to get your kids to obey you is to let them know in no uncertain terms that they are loved by you. That's your primary goal. Not to get them to obey you, not even to respect you, but your number one goal is to let them know they are deeply, deeply loved by God and by you. Because God demonstrates that to us every single day in the way He parents us. In the foundation of the cross, He says boldly to everyone who wants to listen, you're Imperfect behavior is trumped by my perfect love, my complete love, my unfailing, steadfast love. It's new every single morning. And if there's anything your home is built on, I pray to God it's built on that. That your love is new every single day when the sun rises in so many ways. Christians' homes, I believe, work best when based on the same theory of a great foundation. But this one's a grace foundation. That we say to our kids, regardless of your behavior, regardless of your grades, regardless of your accomplishments, regardless of how you perform, I couldn't love you more. And I'll never love you less. Now, 
expressing that cost the father greatly and I want you to know this expressing that in your life is going to cost you <laughs> which explains why Irma Bombeck made this remark I remember how I had three kids I don't remember why now I want to say if you're there this morning we want to come alongside you and make it clear you don't have to figure that out by yourself it takes a church to raise a child. Amen? It does. Gail and I certainly didn't raise ours on our own, and we want to make sure that every single parent in this room understands that. You don't have to do it alone. And please, I'm going to say it again as I said last week, and I'm going to probably repeat this every time I talk about parenting in the next couple of weeks. I don't share any of this stuff as an expert, only as a ragamuffin parent just like you. Only as a, as a parent who was raised in an imperfect home and who raised his kids in an imperfect home and is thrilled that God raises our kids in spite of us as well as alongside of us. Amen, parents? <laughs> it's just a challenge. There's just no two ways about it, especially in this hectic, laser-lane society that we live in. Whenever I think about our homes and I think about the life in them, often I think about that guy you've seen at the variety shows or the circuses who takes one of these things and puts them up on a stick, you know, and keeps that thing spinning. And you know how it goes. He takes another one of these plates and he puts it over here on a different stick and he gets that one going and then he does it with another and another and another until finally you've seen the show where, where one starts to wobble a little bit so he runs over here and he, he works on that one to get it going smooth so it doesn't fall and he's back over here in the next minute. It just gets to be crazy. And, and that can be true even if you're single. Even if you're here today and you're single, I guarantee you, life is a full plate. You're finishing up a degree. You're starting a career. You've got friends. You've got church. You've got that pretty little thing you're focusing on or that handsome little thing you're focusing on. And life is full. So full you think, I wonder if they have an app for this. And so you get one. And it's cool, but you find out pretty quickly, no, apps don't fix this. Apps don't help us manage all that we can put on a plate. And then, then all of a sudden you find out that pretty little thing you were after says, you got me. And you know what? You were thinking that when we get married, I've got all these responsibilities. It'll be like cutting them in half, right? ha. <laughs> No way! You got two plates, baby, with two sets of expectations, hopes, and dreams, and you're spinning those two things. And just about the time you get the hang of that, along comes these. And they require a whole lot more velocity than this one did, all right, when it joined the bunch. And, and, and they're awkward, and they're small, and, and they require so much more effort than you could have ever imagined. And about the time that you think you've got that down, all of a sudden, one of these comes along. A teenager. Who's not a saucer anymore, but thinks he's a plate. And wants all the privileges of a plate. But he has no money. So it doesn't count. But he does have lots of opinions. And they do, don't they? Lots of them. I'm going to put this back over here before I break one of my wife's dishes and I, I get to have a discussion. All right. It's crazy, isn't it? And, and, and when we're in the midst of it, 
Not so much before, but when we're in the midst of it, we're looking for anywhere we can get some advice or some help to just kind of rescue us from the, the craziness of it all. And sometimes we get mixed signals. Not just from the world, but also from the church. And we're not quite sure how to handle that, that marriage or how to handle that, those kids and, and, and that teenager when he comes along. And so over the next couple of weeks, I want to do the best that I can to just share a few basics that I think help with all the decisions and difficulties and struggles you're going to face. And you're going to face them because anybody who, who jumps into just being alive faces all those things. And I don't know whether you're going to choose to soothe the little thing when he or she cries at night or you let them cry it out. Or I don't know whether you're going to choose to, to homeschool or private school or public school or, or I don't know what age you're going to allow your kids to start dating or what curfews you're going to set. Um, this series probably won't answer all those questions, maybe not even answer many of them. But it will equip you with some basics that will help you make those answers in your own Christian home. Today I want to talk about essential number two. The first one was a grace foundation. The second essential to having a Christian home, a uniquely distinctive Christian home, is a loving, capable contractor. Here's what the Bible says about this. My people, hear my teaching and listen to the words of my mouth. I will open up my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. Things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of our Lord, of his power and the wonders that he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. And so the next generation would know them, even the children not yet born. And they in turn would tell their children. And they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. When you build a custom house, when you build a Christian home, most of the time, somebody leads. In the case of our custom house, Gail was a general contractor. Now, she hired a co-contractor, Jim McGee, who helped her along with that process, but make no doubt about it, she was the general contractor. She designed the house. She was leading the building of it. The buck stopped with her. She had the final say about the interior design, the exterior, the appliances, subcontractors that were hired, alterations to any of the design itself. She had final say-so. Now, I was asked my opinion, and I had some influence. I really did. But I say this without any reservation whatsoever. She was the intended general contractor of that job. And I could let her do that. I could allow that to take place without me feeling like I had to do that or we had to hire someone else for a couple of reasons. The first one was she was trained to be a general contractor for three years. Probably most of you don't know that, but she went to work for a general contractor in our church, Cleston Pritchett, one of our elders. She hung sheetrock, and she did framing, and she made trips to get supplies, and she installed roofs, and she did painting. Did all the stuff that went on both in remodels and in custom home building. Not just watching it, but actually for three years participating in it. So I trusted her to supervise a project that was the Sportsman Custom House. 
but most importantly because she had God as her supervisor. There was a foundation verse that I hoped that I would have put in there, but I didn't. Because it's the foundation verse of both our custom house and our Christian home, and it's this, unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain. Now you can see why that would be a foundation verse. And, you know, it could have been just a cute thing that she wrote on the foundation in the cement, which she did. And it could have been a cute thing that she put on the walls as they were going up in our house, and she did. But it really was the bedrock foundation of how and why we were building a house. We knew, unless the Lord helped us do this, it was just vanity in so many ways. If you've got kids, parents, no matter how young or old, in the home or even if it's empty nest, I want you to do me a favor this morning. If you're a parent in any form or fashion, I want you to help me with these words. I'm going to say them and you repeat them after me. I am the parent. It is my role to lead. One more time. I am the parent. It is my role to lead. And it is. It is. In a dance, someone leads. On most teams, businesses, churches, schools, somebody leads. When it comes to raising kids, parents, that's your role. You're not authorized to be a tyrant, but it does mean, on the other hand, you're not the BFF. <laughs> you're just not. Your role is not to be the cool parent. Your job is to be as loving and as capable as you possibly can be to lead your kids. And to lead a home means you're going to have to operate from some level of preparation. Say preparation. I want to just make sure you stay with me. To lead and to be a capable, loving contractor of your home you're going to have to have some preparation. All of us have to. Gail had to have it for our custom house. You're going to have to have it for your Christian home. And I mean that specifically spiritually, all right? You can talk about it in a lot of other ways, but specifically spiritually. You're going to have to have a grace foundation in your life before you can help anyone else build a grace foundation in theirs. That's why the first thing last week under that particular theme was you've got to live loved, parents. Before you love anybody, you've got to live loved. And so that's why our church has to be a foundation that's built on grace. Because everything we do here comes out of that cross that we talked about a few moments ago where, again, my imperfect behavior is trumped by God's absolute perfect love. But that's got to be in you first before it can be in anybody else. And I want to say this, if you've been raised in a performance-based home, if you've been raised in a shame-based home, then I get that the deck is stacked against you somewhat because so was I. But by living love, I promise you, by living grace, you become equipped to be the kind of parent God needs for you to be to build a uniquely Christian home. Because it is not the job of these children to make you feel good about yourself. Now, if you get into that mode, you're going to try too hard to be the BFF. And that is a wonderful extra to life. I'm, I'm thrilled to be friends with my kids, but that was not my primary goal. And it shouldn't be your primary goal of being a parent. Your job is to do the hard work of being a leader. And that may mean spending some time getting prepared. It may mean you reading Grace-Based Parenting by Tim Kimmel. Great book. It may mean that you follow Ann Voskamp on her blog, tremendous blog from Mothers. And Voskamp. It may mean you read The Strong-Willed Child. You may need to read it because we did, 
And we only had two. You may need to download Jim Fay's Helicopters, Drill Sergeants, and Consultants. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. At least that's my plan to. We'll see what God has to do with that. This was the foundation when it comes to leadership in our life other than the scripture that Gail and I turned to for how in the world we were going to try to raise those little saucers and help them become plates, all right? But we had to have some preparation. We didn't have those gifts even though that we came from pretty good homes. Your childhood, again, may not have prepared you to be the parent. That's okay. I want to say to you this morning, you can be a great parent. You can be. Now, you're going to have to be responsible about getting that advice and getting those advisors. But I want to share with you, that's why God gave you a church family and helped surround you with all kinds of cool things. They've got this thing called Heart to Heart that Donna Houston, one of our, our shepherd's wives, and I think Charlotte's involved in that. Every other month, they put together some, I was going to say older mothers to help younger mothers, but I changed that to experienced moms to lesser experienced moms, Okay. Because I didn't want to have a discussion with that either. But it's a great program where you can get around some folks who say, yeah, I'd do that, or wouldn't do that. Tried it, didn't work. Stay away from that one. That's so helpful. But please receive the coaching with humility. It's the only way that it really can be received. You can hear it, but you can't receive it without humility. Because you know what? We can all, well, most of us, 99% of us, we make babies can't raise them. Not in a Christian home. Not in a, in a home where God says, that, 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 I'm thrilled that my name's on that home. That takes a family to do that. But I also want to warn you, <laughs> no matter how much you prepare, there's going to come a time when one of those little saucers that you're raising is going to say these words. You ready? Here they are. You are the worst parent in the world. No matter how much preparation you do, mom or dad, you're going to hear those words. You're the worst parent in the world. We heard them a few times. <laughs> because everybody else's parents stay out of their kids' rooms. And everybody else's parents mind their own business. And everybody else's parents don't make them eat vegetables. Let them dress in all the latest fashions, regardless of modesty. Everybody else's parents have unlimited time on the Internet, play any video game they want, permit any movie to be shown when kids come over, have no curfews, and ask no questions about where they're going in the evening. Those are the cool parents who do that. Well, folks, your goal is not to be the cool parent. Your goal is to be the loving, capable contractor on the job and to lead well, which means you're going to have to walk against the current sometimes. Sorry. It means leading in decisions that take us in a direction we would not go if we took a family vote. As a mom and a dad, it is our job to lead. I can promise you the sportsmen's had several discussions about all those items that I just referred to a few seconds ago and 10,000 other ones because we, we open the door, we welcome discussion with our kids because we realized a long time ago that those discussions about those issues are the journey. Not just getting them from day one to day two outside of 18. No, it's those discussions where we discuss the meaning and why we're doing this as much as possible. I realize there's a time to say because I'm the parent, that's why. But that wasn't very often. Because it was through those discussions that our kids learned. 
But I want you to know that as much as feedback was allowed, I didn't like hearing those words. But Dad, this just stinks. Dad, this is just unfair. Dad, fill in the blank. And when those words came, I had a response. And here it was. Sometimes love hurts. Sometimes love hurts. And it does. And, and we said those things whenever they, they had to eat the squash that was on their plate that they didn't want to eat. Or, or when they, they, they arrived at a, at a number for the age they should start dating that, that didn't agree with our age. I thought 32 was great. They didn't like it so much. So we heard the frustration, we heard the, but dad, and, and, and that stinks, and that's unfair, and they got to hear, but sometimes love hurts. Whenever there were decisions that they chose to make that were outside the vision for our church's family, like our church, our, our, our sportsman family, like um, deciding to come in after curfew and not calling, that was a simple request that came with some simple consequences, that if, if you come in after curfew for every five minutes you're late, that's 30 minutes on the next opportunity that you leave this house, you'll have to come home early from. And I don't know if all that made sense. I don't even know if I said it very well. But they hated it. They didn't miss curfew very much, though. I promise you that. Because they never knew what the next thing was that they were going to be invited to go and be a part of that they had to be home early from because they failed to get curfew the last time. Talk about more of that next week. But man, it was hard to share those words at first. And then I kind of started to like it. Sometimes <laughs> love hurts. And it does. Sometimes love frustrates. Sometimes love disappoints. Sometimes love doesn't go your way. Sometimes love is challenging. Anybody here a Christian? <laughs> yeah. That's how God parents you. You feel all of those things sometimes. And sometimes you say, oh, God, this stinks. This is unfair. And you know what he says back to you? You may not have heard it clearly. He says, sometimes <laughs> love hurts. And it does. Now, a couple of times, enough that my girls could probably make this speech in their sleep, I would say to them, now listen, I know you think that making your life miserable is my job. <laughs> but it's not. As a matter of fact, I want you to so live life to the full that you live it to the full and want your own home. So we can have ours back. And then one day, when you get your own home, you're going to have some grandkids, and I get to become the grandparents, and all of a sudden your kids and, I, and, and Gail and I, we will have the same enemy, you. <laughs> Love to do that speech. Our girls know that speech because it really was our plan to get them out. All right? For their benefit and for ours. But until that day comes, I would say to them, sometimes, finish it with me, church, love hurts. Now, the downside to that was one day we were at Grandma's house, and our nephew, Sean, who was three, was playing with Lauren's headphones. <laughs> and Lauren went over, and she took the headphones away and put them on, and uh, he started to cry. And we heard her say to him, Sean, <laughs> sometimes <laughs> love hurts. And we had to go over and say, Lord, that's just kind of our little thing in the house, you know. Sean's not going to understand that. He's just three. But he will learn. He will. Sometimes love hurts. We prepared as best as we could for building a Christian home. We really did. 
but not just preparing. We put together a plan. Now, I don't know how, how this went in your home. And, and, and again, whenever I share what took place in our home, it's just where God led us. But there's some reasoning and some thoughts and some scripture behind where God led us. And here was just a logical plan. When I, I turned over $150,000 to my wife to build us a custom home, I did so knowing there was a plan. She wasn't just winging it. It's not just because she had seen homes or been in homes. No, I needed to know there was a plan for this custom house that she was building. Now, think for a minute with me, just logically, not even scripturally. Think, parents. Most kids, they say on average, cost in the neighborhood of around $250,000 mentally to raise in America. Just one. And you want to go with this thing with no plan? Because you've been in a family or you've seen a couple of families? Come on. Get a plan. Some kind of a plan that has some guidelines and some parameters of where we, where we intend to go when they're 13 and how we're going to handle 16 in a car and, and do they pay for it or do we pay for it or is it both and or and what time do they, when are they going to start dating and why would we want them to start dating and what does that mean and, and when do they, fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. Is there some kind of a plan? Are there some kind of guidelines about how you, because I promise you, when you get there and in the moment you've got to figure this stuff out, whoa, whoa, that's a challenge. And so I said, yeah, sure, babe. Here, I'll go get the money and we'll, we'll start this house because she had some kind of a plan and you're going to need one. Now, I said earlier that Christian parents need preparation, but Christian parents need a plan. Say the word plan. We've got to have one. A man makes his plans, and God's going to direct those steps. We know the verse for that. But God says plans are good. They're a good thing. Now, are there exceptions to those plans? You bet there are. <laughs> we're human. We're, we're just normal, ordinary moms and dads. And so there were exceptions to those guidelines and those parameters and those rules sometimes. But here's the question that I want to ask. What are the guidelines in your home that are understood without question? Do they know the direction of what's going to happen when they're 13, 16, 18, how it's all going to unfold? Some idea. What's the plan here? But regardless of the plan, you're going to have to stay in charge. And that's not easy. Because here's the thing that I want to share with you happened with our plan. It got tested <laughs> a lot because they wanted to see how serious about the plan we were and because they didn't like the plan. A lot of different reasons, but our plan was tested. And I just want to say, parents, buckle your seatbelt. Yours is going to be tested too, no matter what it is. But you stay in charge. You keep leading because that's your role as a parent. You're the leader. You're the general contractor on this job. Now I want to meddle for a little bit. It takes prayerful wisdom to acquire any plan of action, but it really takes some prayerful wisdom to, to put one in a Christian home. Because when these kids test it with stuff like, but I don't want to go to Bible class. And I don't want to go to youth group. And I don't want to go to Camp Eagle. What's your response going to be? With whatever the reason is that they're going to put in that, where is the place for meaningful, Jesus-shaping events in their life and how the world is going to interact with those events? Do you have a plan for that? But what if they have practice? What if they have a job they've got to go to? What if they, what if they, what if? They're going to be all the what-ifs. 
Here's what we did in our home. We said, if it was truly a meaningful, Jesus-forming event that we felt would benefit us and them, we said, sorry, this trumps going to job. This trumps going to practice. This trumps going to wherever. Fill in the blank with all the what-ifs that they can supply. And it cost my kids playing time and some of their sports, and it cost my kids some of the money that they felt like they just had to have, but it informed them that some things take a backseat to Jesus. Some things. And, and for me, I don't know what they need to be for your house, but, but are there any? Are there any that take a backseat to Jesus? I'm sorry we don't wear that because that's just not a representation of who Jesus Christ is. I'm sorry we're not going to go to that because we've got this thing we've been planning as a family and it's going to be meaningful and I'm sorry you have to miss that, but we're going. Is there anything like that? Guidelines and parameters that, that those what-ifs come up against. And you're not going to do them all, right? We, we fudged on some. We, we had some exceptions. That's just normal. But what's the rule? What's the guideline? Is there a plan. Because Jesus said this, what does it profit a child that he becomes wealthy and a worldwide celebrity and yet he loses his soul? What if he becomes first chair? What if he gets the scholarship? What if he makes All-American? What if, what if, what if? And he loses his soul. Because Jesus was an addition. Jesus was a, was a part, but he wasn't the foundation that everything else moved around. Now, when parents try to lead in this direction, sometimes they lead as Border Patrol agents. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend this one. Border Patrol agents protect the borders and kind of have a defensive mentality about them. We're going to keep the parameters and the, everything safe here and solid. We're going, to, we're going to do some good stuff in here, but that's not near as important as keeping the people out that could be bad influences. And you know what? In this world, that doesn't work that well. And it's the hardest thing for any parent to try to figure out who's trying to be a Christian parent in an unchristian world. It's to try to navigate that about when do you allow our kids to be among influences and to have other influences other than just Christian influences in their life because they'll never win someone to Christ if they don't have someone who's not a Christian in their life. But you can't have this border patrol mentality where the whole idea is to keep everybody safe. Because you know what? Christianity, if you've read the Bible, isn't safe. It's not. So I've got to equip them, and we'll talk a little bit about how you do that in a minute, to be able to go out into it. So it's not a border patrol mentality. It really is a loving, capable, home builder's mentality who's working on building the good stuff in. But here's the image I want you to have so that we can produce a little tiny house, all right? That's really our goal. It's to produce a mobile home in my children where the, the Spirit of God can dwell and they can go just about anywhere. And our goal is not to make it look pretty on the outside where everybody goes, oh, isn't that look impressive or isn't that pretty? No, our goal is the inside stuff that equips them to be able to go and face the injustice of the world and the brokenness of the world and the poverty of the world and yes, even the immorality of the world with their little house and to make an influence and a difference in the neighborhood where that thing settles for the moment. That's the call of being a general contractor of your Christian home, is to help build in them their own little tiny house where God can dwell and be thrilled to do it and welcome to do it. And it's not easy. 
but it really is important to stay mobile. Deuteronomy 6 says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. And you impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them. Assembles on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. But take them with you everywhere. That's why the tiny house. Building tiny homes where they can go and park in any circumstance or neighborhood and situation and be the very house of God in that place. Jesus different but in very ungodly places sometimes. I love the imagery of that, tiny houses. And our teaching has to be mobile to go with it. And I'm out of time, and so I'm going to have to skip this last point, but I want to say this. Unless our teaching is more than just of words, like a few moments ago when we did the, the, the breaking of the bread and the cup, it's wonderful that we talk about that from up here. Here's the historical meaning of that. But do you know what your kids need to know? They need to know what meaning it has in you. Sure, it's a holy meal, taken in a holy place, but what holy difference does it matter? And that needs to come from you. Joshua 4 and verse 21 will be one of those verses you look at when you get home. Right now, I've got to shift to a short video I want to show us because I think it does some things for us as far as helping to not just underscore the idea of what it means to, to speak Religious terms, religious meaning, God ought to do this, you ought to be that, but live it. Because it's amazing to me what my kids have mimicked. <laughs> my daughter came home this last weekend, and she said to me, the Masters is coming in a month. Dad, I can almost hear the music playing. And I thought, train up a child in the way that she should go. And when she is old, she will not depart from it. Oh. The Masters. We both love the Masters, me and Tabitha. Lauren could care less, but me and Tabitha, we love it. It's amazing what they mimic. If you love the thrift store, they're going to love the thrift store. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. If you love to sing, they're going to love to sing. If you love Jesus, there's a really good chance they're going to love him too. Not if you just, they just hear about it, but they see you loving him. There's a little girl that I want you to meet. Her name is Ruby Bridges. And it's kind of a questionable clip that I want to show you because it, um, it has a word in it, kids. I want, to, I want you to hear me. I'm sorry that this word's in there, uh, but it describes a person who's African-American in our culture in a way that we don't, we don't use that term anymore, but in the 60s it was used all the time. And what you're about to see is a little girl by the name of Ruby Bridges who went to school for a year by herself because in 1960, the federal courts mandated that New Orleans would be integrated and every white person, every white person, pulled their kids out of school. But Ruby Bridges went alone. And a teacher from Boston met her there, and as she walked by these white crowds day after day who were mad at her and threatened to shoot her and kill her parents, we're going to hear the words of the psychiatrist, Mr. Robert Coles, as he processed how that little girl, that little tiny house, responded in that volatile culture. Show the video, guys. New Orleans was a flame of 
racial hate and street violence. They were trying to desegregate two elementary schools, and this little girl was ordered by a federal judge to go into one of them. And she was there all by herself. The whole white population had boycotted the school. No other children with her. And I happened to see this little child going into a school in New Orleans at the age of six to the first grade. I thought to myself, I would like to know that child. I'd like to know what's happening to her. One day, having now spent months getting to know Ruby and being rather puzzled at how normal and stoic and strong she was, going through this kind of living hell, 200 people waiting at 8.30 in the morning to tell her they were going to kill her. 200 people in the afternoon telling her they were going to kill her. 25 federal marshals taking her into that building. What would you expect? You'd expect that a child going through that would pretty soon start developing symptoms and be in trouble. I waited and waited, and there weren't any symptoms, and she kept going and learning and being the ruby that she was, a normal six-year-old black child, very poor background. Parents didn't even know how to read and write. Humble people. One day, her school teacher said to me, she'd been looking out of the window, and she saw Ruby yet again coming to school. This time, she watched carefully, and she noticed that as Ruby was walking past this mob of heckling men and women, she stopped, and the teacher saw her lips moving. I said, Ruby, your teacher told me today that uh, she saw you talking to those people on the street. She said to me, Doctor, I told her that I wasn't talking to the people. I said, well, who were you talking to, Ruby? She said, I told her I was talking to God. Could you tell us, uh, tell our audience uh, why you took them out? Because I didn't want them to go to school with the nigger. Why were you praying to God? She said, I was praying for the people in the street. I said, why were you doing that, Ruby? And she said, uh, well, because I wanted to pray for them. I said, you did want to pray for them? Yes, she said. I said, Ruby, why would you want to pray for those people? And then she looked at me and her eyes widened and she said, well, don't you think they need praying for? <laughs> that stopped me cold. Where did she get that idea, Ruby? She said, well, my mommy and daddy have told me that and the minister told me that in church. She said, I pray for them every morning and I pray for them every afternoon when I go home. I say for the mothers to keep their kids out of school. Altogether, we are not, we are white people. We don't want them to go to school with niggas. I have five, and they're not going to school with no niggas. And I said, Ruby, those people are so mean to you, and they're so nasty to you. You must have some other feelings toward them besides wanting to pray for them. She said, I just keep praying for them, and I just hope that God will be good to them. I said, what do you say in the prayer, Ruby? I always say the same thing. What's that, Ruby? Well, I always say, please, dear God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Now, I'd heard that someplace before. And I heard it in that kitchen, in that extremely impoverished house, and it silenced me. I had no more questions to ask. Here is a child whom 
we learned in the 60s to, uh, to say that she came from a culturally disadvantaged and a culturally deprived home. They were illiterate, her parents, and yet they had taught her biblical truths in a way that she was to live them out. I would like to see some of us who have fancy educations bring up our children similarly. Do we? I'm not so sure we do. They hadn't read any of these books in childhood. They didn't know anything about this or that stage of moral or psychosexual development. But boy, they knew how to bring up a child in such a way that she could call upon the statements that Jesus called upon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos. They had memorized in their minds, in church, whole passages from the Old and New Testament and they tried to live it out. And it would be nice if some of, some of us would try to live things out. Not only get an A in biblical literature or an A in moral, moral analysis or an A in uh, Southern history, but uh, to get the kind of A Ruby got. Poor little girl, parents couldn't read. Poor little girl, they lived below the poverty line. Poor little girl. Rich little girl. Extravagantly rich little girl. Because she was raised to know that the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Peter and Paul and Jesus were as real as the story that she was living. May God help us be those kind of general contractors when we're raising our tiny homes. Amen. I want to ask you to stand, please. We're going to offer an invitation, as we always do, with our elders down front to pray over particularly today, any parents who feel like they just need some help with what's going on in your home. But also for anything, any purpose, any reason that we could put our hands around you. But guys, if you go, to, go ahead and put that back up on the screen, please. But I want us together today to say this one verse that, that we say, but I, I want you to, after having especially heard from, from Robert Coles and, and, and what, what this little girl grew up Learning. Could we say this together as a family? I'll, I'll start. Here we go. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. One more time. Unless the Lord builds the house, those that labor, labor in vain.